Well, welcome back to HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, and currently we're working our way through the selected letters of HP Lovecraft as collected in the, the edition by, uh, edited by Durleth and, and Wandry. Uh, this is volume two, um, published in 1968. Um, I've been kind of looking at 20 per episode. Um, so it'll be nine episodes total as I go work through the second volume. And then when I'm done with that, do some other nonfiction writing by Lovecraft at this time period. And then I'll jump back into the stories. Um, so these letters are, are kind of going to set down some of the biography, some of the, the philosophy, the things that are in Lovecraft's mind. And then we'll, we'll get into the stories of the mid 1920s to the, to around 1930 or so. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but, um. A lot of important stories that I'm looking forward to talking about in in the future. But for now, we're going to go through the letters um, as best we can. Um, uh, in a previous episode, I talked about the the advantages and disadvantages of the selected letters as a source. Um, you know, they're kind of what we got, unless you want to kind of really dig deep into the letters. So it's a good place to start. Um, and hopefully the, these episodes will let people maybe decide which letters they want to read or, or, or get an idea of what's in them before they kind of jump into to that part of, of their study of Lovecraft and his works. Uh, so specifically, this episode will look at the letters from May 1926 to October 1926. Uh, so this is the period after he returned to Providence um, after from his trip in New York. So that's really on his mind. And, and we've already sort of seen that in the previous episode how he's really kind of decompressing and interpreting and, and coming to terms personally and intellectually with, with what that means. And there's a lot of letters that are really self-reflective about his philosophy. And I think that's, that's why it's kind of important to read these letters from this, this time period. It's a good place to go if you just want to hear him rant about <clears throat> New York. But I think it goes beyond that. And for an example, let's take the first letter I want to look at today. It's uh, set, it was sent to Frank Belknap Long in May 20th, 1926. Um, and this, you know, it's kind of a, just a reporting on what he's been doing with his life. Since going back to Providence, he talks about his relationship with his aunt, how she, her health is declining and how she's quite helpless. Um, uh, it's not really clear from these letters that that was a big part of his decision to return to Providence. He, it seemed more financial and, and emotional and personal, um, but that, that may have been a factor in it. Um, uh, he talks about his black servant, Delilah. Uh, you know, he doesn't say too much about her, but she is mentioned in some of his letters. So there's this kind of personal stuff, but I think maybe the most interesting thing in this letter is his discussion about his non-intellectualism. And, and he's mentioned this to other people. How he's not really someone who's too into like philosophy as such. And he's really much more aesthetic. And that's why I like to say antiquarianism, because he, that's a way for him to kind of just experience things aesthetically and, and have a feel for things. Um, and the periods of history he likes are those where you feel the kind of the culture was more dominated by by an aesthetic um, kind of spirit. He says to Long, the truth is that I'm really most emphatically non-intellectual and not almost positively anti-intellectual. I had poor mathematics, take no interest in the feats of mental sprightliness. I have no special quickness or of apprehension. I am certainly not at all distraught for holding in my head the many simultaneous threads of a complex matter. 
What liking I have for logic and analysis is purely an aesthetic one. I wish to arrange and classify things in patterns whose configuration shall possess in the realm of ideas that decorative beauty of form possessed by tangible art of object and nature and the real of matter. It is true that I admire and respect intellect most tremendously, but I do not, but it's true, but it's not true that I possess it. I wonder if he was responding to something, like maybe Long was trying to praise his his mind or something, and Lovecraft responded by saying, wait a minute, I'm not, you know, I'm not all that, I'm not into that kind of stuff. Um, other things in this letter are some of the works he's been focusing on, his relationship with the weird tales, he, you know, Art, uh, he was working on Horror Red Hook at this time, working on He. These are like the New York stories that come out of his New York experience. He's still working on supernatural horror and literature. And he also talks about some of the sites and uh, sites in, in Providence. And he does spend a lot of time doing that in these letters as well. Touring Providence, seeing it in new ways. I think that's one of the most striking things from the last episode was how he began to see Providence as uh, a more fallen place than he used to think because he, he started going to neighborhoods that you know he didn't go to before and he noticed that providence has slums and providence has these kind of immigrant communities and and some of the things he hated about new york exist in a certain way in in providence as well so you know when you look at a story like he which is about the decline of a great city i wonder if he worried that this was happening to Providence, uh, Providence as well. But what we get out of this is a lot of his doc conversations, his discussions about the sites um, around Providence. So this is a, uh, a pretty useful and good letter. Now, a week later, he writes another letter to Long. This one's dated May 25th and um, kind of continuing some of the same topics. But this is more about his desire to kind of read more local literature. Um, and how he started going to the library, reading more local history, local stories. And particularly, he's impressed by this Rhode Island corner of the library. Um, and I was kind of touched by that because, you know, f for many years, I was interested in the Wisconsin corner of the library. I still go back there when I can get back to Wisconsin, you know, read some of the old Wisconsin historical collections, the old documents published and collected by this Wisconsin State Historical Society. Um, you know, the state constitutional convention documents. And I, I'd still like to write a book about um, a guy named Warren Chase, who was a, a utopian socialist who lived in Wisconsin. And he was later a, a Republican. He was in the state constitutional convention, one of the two, the failed one. There's, anyway, there's a story to tell there. And so I kind of appreciate what he's saying here about, you know, kind of wanting to get in touch with his, his own past, his own history through this and it's I think it shows some maturity he's not always looking necessarily to England for his past the way he did in his more youthful letters he's appreciating kind of that that local history and literature that said this this article also has some of that like God save the king um, nonsense um, where does he where does he write it yeah had my hair cut yesterday by the same old barber who removed my flowing curls in 1894. He's good old R.I., Yankee of the seventh generation of northern situ situate settlers. God save the king. This is the thing about Lovecraft I, I can't really stomach too much, is this kind of Anglo-Americanism. It's, it's kind of disgusting. It's kind of syphocantic. Syphocantic? Is that the right word? I don't like it. I, I think he 
doesn't respect enough the American experience in this way. Um, he doesn't see it as distinctive enough. He thinks what's best about America, he gets from England. Um, but we know, we know that. We've talked about that before. Um, next letter, also to Long. This one is in June, sometime in June, 1926. Um, you know, often when he writes to Long, he talks about age. He'll like call himself grandpa or call himself, you know, a boy. He's not that much younger than Lovecraft. I think it's like 10 years or so, but he still kind of over-exaggerates the age difference talking about this. And, and, and he thinks, he seems to be thinking a lot about age and achievement and things like that and how his own achievements are lacking despite his age and all that. So there is some self-consciousness about uh, aging. He says, uh, quote, here you are dreading 30 when even that sad young dog Orton is all that and no more. A mere bo boy so young I can't even remember what I, what I was like him, when I was like him. No, sir, that youthful mania will pass and you will come in time to thank God that you arrived at years of balance and discretion. I'm sure I do not wish to be a day younger than my 37 years on August 20th next and shall hail with equal satisfaction the dawn of 47 if I survive that long. As I wrote before you were born, draw me against the tide of time's rough seas and let my spirit rest amidst the past. Um, so he's not so much afraid of aging, but I think he does uh, in this letter have some self-consciousness about achievement and the achievement one should have at a, at a certain age. So another kind of uh, interesting very personal letter actually uh, he does say here though that poets can't age and there's something internal about poets um, and you know but he just says don't dread 30 I mean you could be me approaching 40 um, and he talks about how he's planning some New York um, trips and then another letter the fourth letter in a row to uh, to long uh, this one's June 11th 1926 we only get a really short segment of it. Maybe this was just a postcard or something, but um, or a little note. But uh, it's about uh, Poe. It's about his own article uh, that he's working on. Gives him some reading advice. Not much to say. Just if you're interested in what what Lovecraft's reading and what he's recommending others to read, that's a letter to to go to. So um, next, Clark Ashton Smith, June 17th, 1926. Um, here, it's, he's also talking about his work, but he does it in a different way than he does with Long. He's more honest here about his difficulty in writing fiction. It's, it's strange that he says this because I think most people agree that like, the fiction that he writes in this time are some of his greatest and most memorable works. I mean, this is the era of like the Call of Cthulhu, um, which of course... Maybe not his best, but one of his most well-known. It's certainly a breakthrough work for, for Lovecraft personally, a real achievement. But he's complaining he's not able to write fiction anymore, and that mostly he's spending his time reading for the article. And, you know, we've been talking about this article, Supernatural Horror in Literature, for you know a couple episodes. So he worked on this thing for, like, over a year, months and months. And every time he thinks he understands it, he has to read more articles and digs himself deeper into the hole. And if you've read that essay... You know, it's really, really erudite. I mean, he, he kind of pulls everything he can into that article, and he had, to, he had to learn a lot. He had to gather a lot of knowledge to talk about the whole genre. It's such a great introduction to the whole genre of weird fiction at the time. But when you look at the letters, you get a sense of just how much Lovecraft really struggled 
to get this article to the to the level he he wanted um and he just mentions to smith some of what he's been 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 reading so anyways these letters uh these first five letters not much not too much important i think the most interesting is the first one i mentioned to long where he really talks about his own attitude towards intellectualism and his his kind of getting back into the the back into things in providence um but anyways um next uh wilford blanche tallman another one of his common correspondence this letter is dated june 25th 1926 um and this is uh i think he's yeah he's talking about one of tallman's articles or, or stories and he's praising it again he often praises other people's writings even when he kind of in a in a subtle way will criticize them or give suggestions of how he would write it he he usually is very very generous to other um, authors i think again as i as i pointed out last time even to our authors he ghost writes for you know he's he praises their own their own work um maybe that's just good business he's trying to get clients you know for his revisions or whatever but you know at the same time i think lovecraft's you know i mean to, he suggests that tallman should publish this in weird tales and on the one hand maybe that shows some myopia about where to publish i mean lovecraft published mostly in weird tales at this time but you know also there's not that many places for these types of works there's you know there's the science fiction magazines there's you know all the other pulps that are all kind of specialized genres weird tales became kind of a place for all this stuff we call fantasy or horror it all kind of got dumped into that that journal or that magazine and so you know it's kind of one of the only places such stories would go to be honest uh he mentions working on uh he he writes by the way i just received advanced sheets of my he to appear in the issue after the terrible old man the artist has perpetuated discouragingly stiff and wooden looking pictorial heading so he's looking forward to getting that one published that's really one of his quintessential new york stories um and then he talks about his pedestrian explorations in providence that's his language he, and i've already said he's been doing that a lot just exploring the area of providence exploring different neighborhoods and seeing more of it um and again seeing a side of providence that he didn't appreciate when he was younger i guess or before he went to new york he writes for instance and last night I ascended to State House to see the colonial Duncan Mansion across Smith Street, and lo, found only the gaping cellar where it had been. Confound this criminal vandalism in the name of progress. Something ought to be done about it. Now, this is important because later on he is going to really write about preservation of, of historical buildings. And I think that's, you know, he doesn't get involved in politics too much. He doesn't seem to. I mean, public politics, but one thing he cared a lot about was preservation of public buildings. And that's one thing he was worried about is modernity kind of washing away this old architecture. And he's seen evidence of that already. So that's a, that's a, he sees like he saw the slums and then he saw like the destruction, uh, urban renewal uh, or whatever taking place. And he's highly, highly concerned about that. Um, damage to historical sites in the name of progress. So kind of an important one. I think 
in this this episode or in a future episode? Maybe it's a future episode. No, it is in this one. I'll, I'll talk about it towards the end of this episode. He writes to the Providence Sunday Journal on the need to preserve public um, historic buildings. Um, the next one is to James F. Morton. It's, an, it's another article sort of on aging and isolation. Like his neighbor loses someone, someone like a neighbor dies, and he thinks about aging. His attitude is a little bit different than it is with Long, who he's more optimistic about aging with. He... He writes here, uh, uh, God, but what is left to me in life? That's the damn trouble of growing old. All one old pals start croaking one after another till the only place a bimbo can feel at home is in the cemetery. This very second, I'm dropping a black borders card to the bereaved neighbor. Um, and he writes like a little poem to uh, a little eulogy. And the eulogy is ends up being just a criticism of the mechanical age. Uh, it's, it's, it's worth kind of reading here. Damn be this harsh mechanic age that whirls us fast and faster and swallows with Sabzian rage nine lives in one disaster. I take my quill with saddened thoughts, though falterly I do it, and having cursed the juggernaut, inscribe Oscar's fiat. All right, that's it. It's a little eulogy to a friend, but um, a little bit about aging there. Uh, next, back to Long. Uh, July 1926, more on him aging. It's like a follow-up with the previous letter. You see the same thing happen with, like, when you read all the Howard Lovecraft letters. It's like they keep coming back to the same theme again and again just because that's what you do in a letter, right? You reply, and you reply to the reply. And, of course, it's a conversation, right? It's a, it's a dialogue. So. Um, so here he's talking about aging in a more physical way, talking about this arrival of, of gray hairs. He calls long aging sir instead of, you know, to, to um, grandson or whatever. Whatever kind of, you know, he, whatever pen name you'd call him. But talks about him aging. Um, and I, I think Long must have said he got gray, four gray hairs, actually. And then he says, well, I have a lot more gray hairs than you. That's really the, what, what's going on in this letter. Um, but the big news here is he's finally typed Supernatural Horror in Literature. I don't think it still has an, it doesn't have a name yet. But he just says how much he hates writing it. And the other little, little tidbit here is he says, Now I know I shall never type my 110 pages and 147 page novelettes. Um, I only did this because Cook hustled me up. And he wants it used in the recluse by the end of the, f by the first of next month. So he had to type it. But what are these novelettes? Well, this is presumably the case of Charles Dexter Ward and the dream quest of unknown Kadath. Um, so I think uh, I don't have the exact publication date, publication dates for, for those two um, stories though. I could look it up, but we'll get to them. We'll get to it someday in this podcast. Important stories. I mean, really crucial uh, case of Charles Dexter Ward, one of his greatest horror stories, one of the most historic, one of the ones that has the deep historical memory. Uh, that theme of forgetting is so powerful in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, you know, so important as kind of a synthesis of so much of the Dream One stories. I don't really like Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, but I realize its power and importance and the and the just his his overall works. All right. Next article or next letter is to Talman again. This is dated in July nineteen twenty six. Um, this 
talks about his revision of two black bottles um and and you know that was one of the stories that he worked on um uh with tallman tallman was the the main author of that he was the named author but lovecraft you know helped rewrite it and helped revise it so um we'll look at that story eventually too and he gives some suggestions um to to the author here um and this gives him a chance to talk about like how you build up like horror and he kind of talks a little bit about poe and how poe did this and and what should be done to really build up to that horrifying climax you know like poe did it all for one effect and and lovecraft tried that so much in his earlier works a lot of them do it quite effectively later on he has much more sprawling fantasy world building kind of stories but here he's talking about how do you really build to the effect um like poe he writes, work in a sort of subsidiary climax, or rather an exceptionally tense moment when Foster, fuddled with drink and terror, begins his confession by saying in a terrible whisper that the cross over Vanderhoof's grave keeps falling down in the night. So it's a, this is a specific suggestion about two black bottles, which is a good story, by the way. Uh, I'll, we'll, we'll get to it. Um, it'll be a while, but we'll, I'll get to the next stage of the revisions in the future. Um, and yeah. Basically, this is an article about the writing process of Two Black Bottles. If you're that interested in that particular story or his relationship with Tolman, it's a good article for that. Uh, next to Clark Ashton Smith, a very, very short one, another one of these one paragraph selections where the editor has just kind of pulled out one paragraph of a presumably longer uh, letter. It's a shame. I mean, after having read those Howard letters, which are pretty much all intact, edited just a little bit i think you know it's you there's a lot of good stuff you know are missing in these selected letters um but i will say i think the editors got better in the later volumes like in volume three and four and five you end up getting much longer uh selections maybe fewer letters but but more of them that's not so broken like these in volume two a lot of these letters are really broken up so I'm kind of going through them so fast. But anyways, this one is to Clark Ashton Smith, August 9, 1926. Uh, this is more of a just a rant about the hypocrisy of the world. Um, his preference for like the works of Lord Dunsany and, and kind of his nostalgia for that type of, of, of writing. Um, he writes, irony used to interest me when I was younger and more impressed by the hollowness of the things that cast days, castigates. But nowadays, the current hypocrisies do not seem important enough to warrant the expenditure of artistic effort against them. Nothing in the universe matters very much, and to laugh habitually at any one set of things seems almost to imply that they're worth laughing at. So, um, that's that. Um, then we have uh, a letter to August Derleth. Uh, the summer, August 13, 1926. Um, this is mostly just praise of, of The Hill of Dreams by Macon. Um, and, and they both seem to agree that they really like the story. Um, and that's all. Not much else here. Uh, it talks about this kind of dream life as a Roman. I think we'll get to this kind of Roman dream. I think it's in this volume later on. He, he has this very very detailed dream of being a roman and he documents and he writes about this to several of his friends um 
you know, but this is on his mind, like dreaming to be a Roman. It, it's on his mind at this point. And he mentions it a little bit here. So another very short, a short little selection. As with the next one, a uh, letter to uh, James F. Morton, um, where he basically is just talking about lead local legends. This is kind of a nice little fragment of local Americana, um, where the rumors, the local rumors that there's a hidden gold of Captain Kidd. I mean, this is the kind of a thing you would imagine young people in New England, you know, kids in New England would talk about. They play pirate and then they would tell stories with each other that, oh, Captain Kidd hit gold here because, of course, he was active up in up in New England. So, that's, you know, if you believe in like the pirates buried their gold kind of mythology, it's not hard to imagine like maybe it's buried here. And if you're a kid on a summer afternoon without anything else to do, you start digging around for Captain Kidd's gold. Uh, and you hold out hopes that it's really there. Um, nice. But this myth is a real thing, right? Strange legends in connection with the hidden gold of Captain Kidd. Notwithstanding the fact that it was not built until 35 years after the Bozone question performs its aerial minuet. So Lovecraft here has to kind of burst the bubble on the mythology. But I think we can imagine where maybe some of the, the origins of this mythology about Captain Kidd's hidden gold may have come from. Um, next we have uh, to James Morton, August 20th. Uh, this is actually uh, written on Lovecraft's birthday uh, or about his birthday, uh, 36 years old. And mostly he writes about how the world has changed over his 36 years. Um, but finally we're getting into like the first substantial letter that really gets into kind of the issues of race, issues of of his views of history, politics, kind of the stuff that I, I kind of meant to go into when I started this podcast. And that is a very, very important letter, one you kind of should read and at least look at. And that is Frank Belknap Long. He's a, he's a recipient, August 21st, 1926. A multi-page uh, selection here, written uh, August 21st, the day after his birthday. He even writes it down here. The day after my 36th birthday. And it's about um, Judaism and the Jews in history, in Europe. And, his, and it, that's going to lead directly to some of his thoughts on race. So let's kind of go through this article with a little bit more detail. Now, obviously, Long is one of the people he wrote to that he didn't hesitate to to kind of be fully honest about his his racial politics i've noticed um tends to be a little bit more silent on these issues with some other correspondence but but not too long um for whatever reason i think his age or kind of the mentor mentee kind of relationship that they had um but anyways about this article uh the this letter um I mean, he starts off basically saying Jews can't be assimilated in Nordic societies. I mean, this is essentially is the argument that the Nazis made about, I mean, they saw Judaism as a racial thing, not just a religious thing or a cultural thing, and therefore assimilation is not really possible. And this is despite, like, evidence to the contrary, where you, you, you had a century since, like, Jews were, quote-unquote, emancipated politically in, in Europe. And you did have assimilation, intermarriage, uh, certainly cultural assimilation, linguistic um, assimilation. So Lovecraft here just doesn't have historical evidence to, to stand on here. 
and of course, he comes to the conclusion Jews are not really of Western civilization. They're really of, of the East. Um, and all that they can really do, therefore, is absorb some aspects. Now, all this comes back to his basic theory of civilizations, that they relatively are uh, rooted in a place and in a history. And other cultures aren't necessarily, he doesn't necessarily rank them all the time. Like, you know, it's not always one's better than the other. It's often, they're just different and therefore they really can't mix. And Jewish civilization is a separate civilization with its own roots. And the best you can get is a little bit of absorption, a little bit of crossover. But what will happen is one civilization will always, at the end of the day, win out. Right. And I think, you know, the Jewish issue is side here. The, he's talking about Jews here. But this is really a good summation of his whole kind of theory of, of civilizations. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if he gets some of this from Toynbee. Uh, Toynbee was right around this time, and he had this idea of civilizations kind of emerging out of a certain ecological or environmental circumstance and struggle, and that becomes their cultural foundations. And, and so, yes, if you take that civilization to a different location, it is somewhat kind of foreign, right? But I don't think Toynbee had this idea in such racialized terms. He just said, like, the institutions, the culture of a civilization are going to be rooted in a particular place and a particular geography and a particular relationship with the environment um now that's one thing but then he starts to go into like the characteristics of the jews as he sees them um and basically he comes to the conclusion that they hate what the others what the nordics love let's see if i can find the quote it says nordic and jew culturally can never meet on common ground uh, because each one cordially hates what it's sacred to the other the Jew, to start with, is a humorless and emotionally overdeveloped ethical fanatic with a leaning to the grandiose and an absolute indifference to that pride and physical courage, which with us is really the measure of a man. You can't imagine the natural reaction of this alien-minded stock to our essential, playful, power-loving, and indomitably proud fabric of unconquerable freemen. And that is not the worst. And then he goes into the alienage of, of the Jews to this Nordic civilization. And then he's got more nonsense like this. Um, he actually associates Jews here with, with an eternal East. Um, and then he says, this is the same with the Hindu Fakir and the Chinese Kuli. So he says like India and China, same kind of situation. They're part of that eternal East separate from the West, its own civilizations. Not that he's not saying that the Jews, Hindus, Chinese are the same. He's saying that they're all part of this East. Um, so, now he gets a little bit weird here at one point where he says like some racial stock of the Jews should be or could be absorbed by Nordics but only some and only in a certain way he, he writes fine learning even fine race stock there may be but so long as a cultural group looks back to sources utterly loathsome to our own aesthetic scheme we will always detest them so I say that whilst it's eminently desirable to salvage good Jewish race stock by very gradual absorption into the Aryan and dominating body, it is absolutely necessary that this salvaging be accompanied by the total effacement of the newcomer's traditions. So I don't know really what he's calling for here. If you're going to totally efface the traditions, what's actually being absorbed outside of some purely racial characteristics? It, I mean, this is kind of really gross stuff, but um, whatever. Um, so sometimes he'll say like these civilizations are just different 
it's not about greatness, but still at the end of the day, he says the Nordics are, are, are better, but that's, that's not the fundamental problem. It's not why you, it's kind of a, these two cultures can't coexist or can't merge into something greater. Um, it's, you know, the greatness of what he sees, the greatness of, of Western Nordic racial stock is separate from his overall theory of civilization. It seems to me in my reading of this, not just from this letter, but others too. He says, as with Chinese culture, whose absolute greatness we freely acknowledge, we may say that Jewish culture is doubtlessly highly excellent in its proper place, but that place is not among us. For those points of view which are eminently harmonious when working with other Hebraic ideas become utterly discordant, hostile, and injurious when brought in contact with points of view whose sources and direction are wholly distinct and opposite. Semitism has never done anything save harm us when forced upon us or adopted by accident. And then he goes into, you know, Christianity versus Odin and Thor and how would you be better off if we still worship Thor or whatever, uh, rather than Christianity. Um, so from this rant about the Jews, much of it very unpleasant to read and, and certainly um, uh, it is what it is, right? But, but we got to face we got to face his his racism directly, I think, because uh, I do think it's crucial to unpacking like the whole of his work. I, I'm not a believer that you can kind of compartmentalize these and just kind of skip these letters and still uh, appreciate Lovecraft as fully as if you, you know, as if you didn't read these. I, I think as if you did read, read them, I mean, I think you sort of got to kind of grapple with this. And that's what I'm trying to do. Um, anyways, then he goes on to New York. He's still got New York in his mind. And he talks about New York as having this mongoloid problem, basically a problem of race mixing. And that this is kind of a sign of the problem of the Jews. So even though he kind of diverts to talking about black people for a minute, it's really like the same problem. It's like this, you can't assimilate these, these cultures. So you end up with just some kind of mongrelization or uh, a, a broken and shattered society and civilization um but he does make a slight difference here he does say that with blacks it's it's actually worse because quote with the negro the fight is wholly biological while with the jew it's mainly spiritual but the principle is the same we are aryans and the future as a self-respecting stock lies in our resistance to anything like an alexandrian mental hybridization um now as as racist as i know the, the concept behind this is I always want to laugh whenever he talks about this Alexandrian mongrelization or Alexandrian hybridization because I don't know we all learn about Alexander the Great and his empire in, in school or whatever but how many of us come away from that and think like it's like an example of like it's, it's just a parallel to the modern degradation of like immigration or something I, I, I don't think we think that way and I, I just think it's kind of partially his own creativity and and his interest in the ancients, his interest in Rome, and kind of there's a contrast between Rome, which he's, you know, kind of had its more intact civilization and the Alexandrian empires, which were all mixed. Of course, the Romans brought in all these slaves, right? Uh, just like America brought in all these slaves of different cultures. So, I don't know. So, uh, he kind of breaks it down into two problems here, like the the national one and the cultural one, and they're so, sort of separate. One is more civilizational and one is more national. And he concerns, he's concerned more with the, the civilizational one. Um, 
but I think it's important that he kind of makes this distinction a little bit, um, right? And specifically, there's two Jewish problems in America, national and cultural. One, I guess, is like more of the, what is the place of the Jew in the nation? And the other is like, what's the place of the Jew in Anglo-American civilization? They'll seem to be separate issues for him. And then he adds to this, we can, then we got the local biological problem, the New York mongoloid problem. I, uh, he says, well, New England's not any better. New York or New England has its Latin problem. So he kind of throws out at the end of the letter saying, well, you know, it's not all, it's not all wonderful up here too. We have, you know, I guess Italians moving in or, or I guess that's what he's talking about. Um, French Canadians. He's got a Latin problem though. Uh, in, in New England. So enough about this letter. I could say more about it, I suppose, but I don't really want to. It's, it's a tough one. It's one of his more overtly racist uh, letters. It's not pretty. All right. So next, uh, Tallman again. Remember Tallman's who he's writing uh, Two Black Bottles with. Uh, Tallman wrote Two Black Bottles. He, was a he wrote the revisions of it. Uh, this was dated August 24, 1926, so that's uh, three days later. Uh, and notice he's, whatever all this Jewish stuff's on his mind, he doesn't write it to Tolman. He doesn't touch it. He doesn't write that stuff so much to Morton. He, he kind of saves this really nasty stuff to Long. I, I don't know why. Maybe I have to look at a biography of Lovecraft to maybe see why this is, but I got a sense it's, it's an age thing or, or just that he feels that he can kind of lecture to Long in ways that he doesn't feel he can lecture to other people. Um, but anyways, to this letter to Tallman, it's a different, it's more of a praise for Poe. It's a defense of weird fiction. And, and I think it's, it's a, it's very short. We don't have much to work from here, but it is a defense of, of weird fiction as such and, 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 and the field. Um, the next letter, September 8th, 1926, is also to Tolman. Um, and here, it's, it's, he's talking about a different topic. Uh, this time, it's talking about architecture, especially Stuart era and Georgian era architecture. His favorite era, especially Georgian 18th century architecture is his favorite. For Stuart architecture, that's like Kingsport, if, if you read the stories. Kingsport is, is a Stuart, kind of the Stuart era of the 17th century and the the providence is more Georgian. Um, but he does get to like culture mixing a little bit. He kind of hints at the culture mixing question in the context of, of architecture. Um, but here it's all kind of Nordic. It's, it's like, it's a culture mixing, but it's all within this Nordic tradition. So he's talking more here about English and Dutch fusion. And that's not as problematic for him. Like, I wonder what he'd say about like, you know, African and Anglo kind of architecture being fused. I guess that's where you get the Cyclopean stuff, uh, maybe that to show up in the stories. Maybe that's what all the weird architecture that he doesn't really fully describe all the time in some of his stories. Maybe that's what it is. It's some weird fusion of, uh, it's this mongrelized architecture. But, you know, within a certain context, he doesn't, he thinks, Culture mixing can actually add something to the architecture. And he gives an example of it right here. It's only natural to assume that an English feature flourishing only when Dutch influence is strong must owe something to the Holland tradition. It is so with the Gamble Roos in English New York. They all have the short upper and long lower pitched characteristic of Dutch design. 
whereas the gambo roofs of New England have nearly equal pitches. So he's, it's, he's much more neutral when it comes to culture mixing within uh, a certain framework. All right. Um, next letter is to James F. Morton, September 27th, 1926. Uh, this, you know, Morton, he's not as overtly racist when he writes about issues of immigration and, and culture to Morton, I don't think. I don't see it. Um, but he does talk about these issues sometimes. And here's a good example of him talking about immigration policy. All right. Which, of course, is a mainstream debate in the 20s. Uh, America's rethinking its immigration policy in general in the 20s, kind of going for the, for the first time in history from open borders to basically closed borders. That happened in the 20s. Um, and here's what he says. Really, the question in any immigration policy is not so much the effect of a remote future on the maintenance of enough congeniality of population to save the legitimate natives of a place from feeling like strangers in their own hereditary sod. Only a damn fool can expect the people of one tradition to feel at ease when their country is flooded with hordes of foreigners who, whether equal, superior, or inferior biologically, are so antipodal in physical, emotional, or intellectual makeup that harmonious coalescence is virtually impossible. Now, notice with me that this is nothing that he doesn't say to... to um, to long, but he does it without doing a, like a, a clear rant about Jews. The closest he gets here is he says, um, you know, he actually says, the Nordic is probably not superior to the best Mediterranean stock or the unbroken and almost extinct Semitic white stock, but just as the Chinese culture ought to be preserved, where it once was entrenched, where Nordic culture is once entrenched, it must be preserved. He, he doesn't do the cultural ranking and he doesn't say like, He's not as vicious in this letter, even though he's making the same argument. It's more of a mainstream approach, I think, to this. Um, so maybe if you don't want to read that long letter to long where he's really racist, read this one. You get the same kind of idea about civilizations. Um, then we have October 26 to Talman. This is just discussing the completed version of Two Black Bottles. He's, pretty hum he's got a lot of humility about the revisions he made. Talks a little bit about weird tale publications um, and how he hopes it can be accepted and all that. So that's that's uh, just a little career letter. It's one of those. Now we get to the letter I referenced before, which is about preserving historic buildings. Um, this was dated October 5th, 1926, to the Providence Sunday Journal. And as far as I remember, this is the only, at least in volumes two, three, four, this is the only letter to like a public organ. All the rest are personal letters. This one is a public kind of policy statement to basically the people of Providence and the government of Providence saying we need to preserve historic architecture. It's a good essay. I think it's a good defense of historic architecture and an argument for preserving it. Uh, he does this without getting into like, theories of civilization and race and everything like that. He's basically saying, you know, no other town in America has this kind of architecture. And for that reason, Providence's identity and, and culture should, should try to preserve it. And he gives a lot of examples of historical architecture, particular buildings, including the old Providence Gazette. Uh, make kind of a, a connection to the journalistic community he's somewhat addressing here. Um, 
quote, treasures like these, he writes, are too precious to lose without a struggle and deserve all the effort and finance which can be brought to their aid against the encroachments of boomtown babbitry. Any mushroom oil center can have bright lights, skyscrapers, and apartment blocks, but only a well-loved set of centuries of pure taste and gracious living can have an urn-topped ivied walls and gabled and steepled vistas. Um, so he, he does think kind of Providence is kind of unique in its, in its uh, skyline, and it should be preserved. And, and I think there's nothing offensive in this regard. I think it's actually a really good argument for, for preserving, because that's something I think we should do. I think... Uh, we shouldn't tear down whole neighborhoods in the name of progress. Um, and one more letter. Uh, October 11th, 1926 to Wilfred Bland Tallman again. Um, he talks about how he's working with Houdini on something. We know this is Under the Pyramids. Um, or no, maybe it's not. Maybe he already wrote Under the Pyramids by this point. I think it might be his, no, his camp, the campaign against astrology. That's it. Now, I think you can find these. I'll, I'll look around for them. I, I know maybe they're recently dug up or something. Houdini was a debunker, right? He did magic and escape and stuff like that. He was a illusionist. But often, you know, these people work to expose the true con artists out there. And Houdini was one of these people who worked on debunking uh, the real con artists, the psychics, the astrologers and all that. And Lovecraft was hired to, to dig into this and pull up data and write an article under Houdini's name. It would have been another collaboration with Houdini after Under the Pyramids. And yeah, so he becomes sort of a research assistant for Houdini. Um, and he also says, my next job for the sprightly wizard, wizard in Houdini is an article on witchcraft which makes me lament with a redoubled intensity the lack of a peek at Waits book um, so he's thinking about you know what he's going to work with uh, Houdini on so I want to try to get a hold of these articles if I can but uh, yeah I think I saw somewhere that some of these were being dug up so anyways that's it for now um Next episode, I'll just keep working through this volume of the selected letters, specifically uh, October 26 to February 27. Uh, we got a f another long letter to Long in there. Some race stuff to Morton. So we got another chance to compare how he talks about race to Morton and um, and, and and Long. Some stuff to Durlath. Description of high, Strange High House on the Hill, a great story. Rejection of Call of Cthulhu, more revisions for Houdini. So good stuff in the next uh, episode um, as we kind of work, continue to work our way through the selected letters of H.P. Lovecraft. So anyways, if you have any thoughts about anything I wrote or anything I said I mean or anything that Lovecraft wrote in these letters, let me know. Send me an email. Leave a comment. I will, will see you next time. Thanks for listening.